Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Cassia. And as always, I'm Dylan Guare. Our book this week is The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley, originally published in 1953. Summering with a fellow schoolboy on a great English estate, Leo encounters a world of unimagined luxury. But when his friend's beautiful older sister enlists him as the unwitting messenger in her illicit love affair, the aftershocks will be felt for years. And we are joined by poet Vivek Neryanan. His collection After was published by NYRB's Poetry Imprint last year. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Usually, we ask our guests why they chose the book under discussion, but uh, in this case, having read your poetry collection after, I wanted to ask why you chose to quote the opening line of The Go-Between in your reinterpretation of a Sanskrit epic. Oh, did I do that? Uh, yes, oh, yes, you did. Of course, I did. Yes, yes. I've forgotten that I'd done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'd completely forgotten that I'd done that. And the first sentence, by the way, is one I'm, I'm assuming that most of your listeners will recognize, even if they haven't read the novel. And for the longest time, the first sentence was the only sentence that I knew of the novel as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not, it's not thematically, it's not a novel that would get me jumping up and down. And I mean, a novel about upper class British class relations is not, right, is not necessarily right. my thing. And, uh, and I think that uh, I remember, I think this, uh, this was, if I'm not wrong, this is one of the one of the first NYRB classics. Is that right? I'm not sure. I could see early. why it would be if it was. Yeah. 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 So 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 because I'm, I'm remembering because I remember, you know, it would have been 2002, you know, a bookstore mm-hmm. in Boston. And I'd been walking around for this first sentence for, you know, maybe uh, 15 years or something, a while at that point. And, you know, and I was like, oh, there's that book, you know. So then I, I picked it up and I read the first sentence and then I couldn't stop reading it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I must have read at least a few pages right there in that bookstore before I, I bought it. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the novel fascinates me on many levels. I'm now, I think I'm now starting to understand why, maybe a reason why I could have put it in my book, but because the novel fascinates me on many levels. But, but for me, where it really, the fascination kind of begins and ends is just in the prose. And just that the quality that the um, the kind of magical kind of hallucinatory quality of the prose. And, and what's strange is that, you know, the, the sentences kind of stay with you, you remember them, not in the sense of like, you know, quoting them all the time and so on. But when I've read the novel, you know, a few years apart, and I pick it up, and then suddenly I realize, you know, the sentences begin to surface as if, as if repressed memories, you know, yep. and that happened, that happened again. And, um, and uh, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading a piece on it in the Guardian by the, the British novelist, Ali Smith, and she describes the same phenomenon. So then I realized I, I want this something about these sentences. And this time round, when I was when I was uh, reading, I mean, it's still, it's still, it's still, it's still kind of mysterious for me because what I think is that 
you know, the, the novel kind of really sustains this kind of lyrical quality for a while. And my feeling it goes to about two thirds of the way through the book. And that's when suddenly, you know, it flags a little bit and you're kind of following the different characters and it becomes that kind of book. And then it picks up again at the end. So this time what I noticed is that there are these comparisons, um, often they're similes, uh, sometimes they're metaphors. And so the past is a foreign country is one of those comparisons, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and some of them are, see if I can find this, I, I made a kind of uh, list of these. I tried to kind of spot, I tried to, tried to kind of go back and spot these, especially the, the, simil the similes. Yeah, so, so it says, well, the early one, to my, to my mind's eye, my buried memories of Random Hall are like effects of chiaroscuro, patches of light and dark. Oh, yeah. yeah. Marion answered at once, and it was like two steel threads crossing each other. Then there was one, I, I went towards her nervously, caught like a moth in the beam from her eye. So, you know, and some of these are, are quite outlandish. And mm -hmm. so then I, you know, and I realized that, you know, the things that they're bringing together, maybe they're, you know, they're Hartley himself mentions in the, in the, the epilogue, you know, the kind of the relationship between experience and the imagination. Or another one is the, the world of facts, the kind of banal world of facts and the world of memory, you know. And mm -hmm. so I start to wonder maybe that, that this quality of simile, uh, which, by the way, is, is obviously all over the classical texts and Valmiki and so on. Right. You know, is, 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 is part of what is kind of driving the, the lyrical quality of this book and the way it seems to bind, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, fairly banal experience with these kind of really sort of sometimes outlandish comparisons and and similes and so so that's i mean that that is that's perhaps part of the part of the trick but yeah so 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 basically the the, the prose is is that's again that that's where it begins and ends for me yeah i just find it's a kind of absolute touchstone for that i did read i read some of other a couple of hartley's other novels oh okay yeah, and there there are passages where which kind of soar like this, you know, in in, in a kind of lyrical way, but but nothing uh, that I read that that quite kind of sustained it for as long as this did, and um, mm -hmm. so that it, I I think that you know there's something there's a relationship between the language and the subject of the book, uh, which is you know or one of the subjects of the book, which is which is memory. Which is, yes. Yeah. 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 That's one of the like most interesting features to trace throughout the book is the treatment of memory and the way that like we drift in between the child and the adult and then maybe somewhere else in between. Right. Yeah. So we usually start out talking a little bit about the author. So Leslie Poles Hartley was named after Leslie Stephen, Virginia Woolf's father, uh, which is funny given that in her diary, Woolf referred to Hartley as, quote, a dull fat man. Uh, his own his own father was a brickfield owner, and Hartley's childhood coincided with the family's rise from middle class to the new rich. Obviously, class anxieties are very much at the heart of the go-between. He studied at Harrow and then at Oxford during the First World War at a time when many men were 
enlisting, fighting rather than studying. Hartley was eventually conscripted but never saw active duty because of a heart condition. He was primarily known as a book reviewer until he published his first novel in his late 40s. Though he is the author of many books, The Go-Between, influenced by his childhood experiences, is by far his best-known work. I haven't read any other Hartleys, although I have, I think, the boat like on a shelf waiting for me somewhere. But this this is like, there's magic in this book, I think. Yeah, makes me want to go pick up his other ones. They're, they're, they're definitely interesting. There's a, there's a sort of trilogy about this brother and sister, Eustace and Hilda. Oh, yeah, that one's an NYRB too, right? Right, right. Yeah. We'll have to see what more he has to offer. Yes, yes. So as always, we talk about the cover image. And this one is a photograph titled Self-Portrait by Alvin Langdon Coburn, taken appropriately in the year 1900, uh, which is, of course, the year this book is set, at least in the the past sections. The, The promise, ultimately a false promise of the turn of the 20th century, is a major theme in this book. So it, it does feel appropriate. What did you think of the cover, Vivek? No, I, I mean, I, I, um, I loved the cover. I was kind of drawn, drawn to it. I suppose, the, I suppose all of these things because my first encounter with, with this book was in this edition. So, so all of yeah. these, th- all the whole, the whole magic of the book, everything is kind of bound up together, and, and mm-hmm. the, 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 uh, the cover is part of that, and. Yeah, and I think that that in the in the pro is it the prologue of the first chapter? There's a photograph of him and Marcus. Oh, I mm-hmm, have forgotten you know? that. And there's this whole thing about how they're dressed and how, you know, for instance, he says they dressed the, the, what we would consider overdressed because the novel yeah. is sort of narrated from the 1950s, something like that. Yes. And so so they they seem overdressed. That's one thing he notices. And then the other thing he notices is that. At that point, it wouldn't have been considered suspicious or inappropriate for two boys to be draped around each other like that. Sure, uh, sure. That's so. That's also part of the the sort of queer coding of the novel. You know, it seems to be, and and um, so there's that there's that image of the kind of photograph and how we look at photographs, and that's interesting to know that it was actually taken in 1900. So, yeah, it has this like slightly blurry quality of like the face it's almost like an awkward glimpse of a guy oh sorry my cat causing destruction um but uh no that just felt like very very appropriate because some of the other covers i've seen the older covers are more like the flowery english garden like field thing and there's like there's a darker like weirder current in this book that's like one of the most interesting facets rather than like the Downton Abbey way of looking at yes, it. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as you are well aware, the book opens with the now famous quote, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And in his author's introduction, Hartley says that novelists are at their best when they're recalling. And, uh, you know, the narrator of this book at the beginning in the prologue discovers this diary and it unleashes this, this story from his mind, this story that he's suppressed about something that happened to him in the summer of 1900. Do you agree with that statement that like writers are best in that mode of, of memory? And how does setting this story in the foreign land of the past maybe strengthen its impact? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, think, I think a lot of that, a lot of us have that sort of experience of childhood as being this 
kind of blurry hallucinatory thing and and that there's a there's a sort of tradition of of novels of childhood and also memoirs um i'm thinking of vladimir nabokov's speak memory and you know voleshchenko's arkay there's there's a lot of books so there's a so so often you have you know you have novels of childhood kind of remembered with this kind of intensity and clarity of course the novel is not autobiographical in the sense that the story is not right autobiographical it's the sort of it's a sort of the mood and the feel uh, that he's is drawing on for his childhood but but i think that i mean what's interesting about the way that he handles it is it's like he's sort of enact he's kind of dramatizing the act of memory and so unlike some of those memoirs where you know it seems like okay they've remembered everything from their childhood and how could they possibly remember all these <laughs> mm. things you know here he's also he's often telling you things he doesn't remember mm. so he will describe and he said well that is a great point yeah so he's and that i mean that's all part of the i think that's part of the fiction part of the fiction uh, master's trade to be able to to make you believe it even more by by kind of dramatizing memory this way and the the other thing is that you know i think that as a child what's interesting is that i don't know if you would agree with this but there there's a lot of things about the other adult world that just don't make sense or that seem yeah obscure in some way and and like one thing i remember i i my childhood in in um, in africa it was post independence africa so not a very not a very racially segregated society but but race is sort of functioning there and i just remember you know kind of being looking back as an adult i remember kind of being baffled by race you know baffled by sure i i didn't have that word for it then but a baffled by and then you go back and then you think okay well, this is why you know this is why they said that and so all these things sort of make sense in retrospect and um, and and that's kind of underlined in the novel because he is someone who he's kind of an outsider to this sort of hierarchical mm. world so he's he's trying to learn the codes of it and he's he's sort of baffled by why things happen like this so so there's that sort of confusion of childhood as well about the adult world that in a way makes it more porous and interesting uh, a subject for a novel yeah yeah i do love a book that can really accurately describe the confusion of being a child and the like sort of the realization of adulthood and i think it's really good that they do have this sort of frame story that begins and ends especially in the prologue and the epilogue but does kind of come throughout but that was actually one of the criticisms that was lobbed at the book at the time was there was a quote that said the frame was too heavy for the picture which is just absolute lunacy for me cuz like that's what makes the book so good <laughs> yeah what did you think of the way the story was framed no it's 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 beautiful and and uh, yeah that that comes in the author's introduction where he's clearly very defensive about it so he must yeah, have been hearing he this should. for a while i feel defensive and, about and, it yeah and one of the things he kind of is defensive about it is the epilogue uh you know which, which is, is like the best part like yeah it is i mean that epilogue is astonishing because it's not just a, you know where are they now epilogue is an epilogue that makes you see the whole book in a completely different way you know 
so we'll we'll talk about the epilogue a little bit so, deeper. So, so much for the critics, questions, you know. So it's... But we'll keep spoilers at bay for now. Right. But we I think we have to talk about the epilogue in detail later. We'll let people know when we get to that though. So uh, we're going to be doing spoilers, I guess. Or, we're going to be doing some spoilers yeah, I feel later like on. We I have to. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. But we'll 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 make a warning of it. But yes, the epilogue is is really important. Another thing that Hartley was kind of taken aback by when the book came out besides that criticism is it seemed that after the book's publication readers seemed to sympathize with Marion and Ted who are right. the secret lovers that the main character Leo passes notes between yeah he is the eponymous go between and after a talk in in Leicester he wrote to his publisher i wonder what the midlands are coming to <laughs> because of this uh reaction what is like your personal reaction to uh, Marion and Ted's relationship? How do you view them? And do we see it differently through the eyes of the child who is the one sort of narrating the book to us? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I, didn't re- I, I didn't realize that. I still can't somehow believe that he was this conservative person who didn't agree <laughs> yeah. with, you know, how... I. I, I is it a pose or because because that's not what I I mean mm. uh, but if he was I guess I mean it's it's good for him that he as a novelist he really let let things take over but but for me what I you know he keeps I feel like I keep changing my mind about yeah how I feel about these characters you know at at, at first I'm so the this this child is used as a go-between between these adults who are conducting affairs that that he that he is only dimly aware of, and um, and at first you sort of feel the tenderness of the adults for the child, then at one yeah. point I start to feel like no, they're really just exploiting him, and and they've got all of these things going, and they just they're just using him in some way in a way that he can't comprehend, and of course they do try to you know when he wants when he doesn't want to be a go between. Then they try to guilt trip him and they try to, mm-hmm. you know, bribe him and they, they try all of these different things. So then you get that sense of the adult world being really kind of venal. But then that shifts again, you know, and then, then your sympathies yeah. come round to them again. So so for me, you know, that that one of the and that's one of the fascinating things about the novel is that you keep sort of revising your idea of who these characters are. Yeah. To the last page. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think especially Marion, who is the female in this this love triangle-ish. I was trying to describe my opinions to Cassio yesterday. And to me, Ted, the sort of farmer boy she's carrying a love affair on with, is sympathetic because he seems ignorant a little bit to like how many rules are being broken here and is maybe he a bit though? wide-eyed and... I, I, I think I think he thinks that she will care for him more than she does in a way. Marion, you mean? Marion. Yeah. And trimming him seems to be someone that is more knowledgeable of what is going on than is maybe let on. He when he talks about this past relation of his who had a, a duel over a woman that was with, with another man, he seems to understand yeah. that like the roles that he needs to play in this sort of society. And mm-hmm. Marion is the interesting one. Cause there, when we talk about like great sentences, there is this wonderful sentence where Leo is 
considering all the possibilities and emotional drives that these characters take. And it says, Ted wants to be with Marion. Trimingham wants to be with Marion. And Marion wants to be with Trimingham and like have Ted by her side. Where Marion sort of thinks, you know, she can sort of have it both ways. And that's what makes that character much more interesting where I don't know, is it her folly? Is it her manipulation? Is it, I I, I struggle with what her motives are for everything because she seems very Mm. sweet at some times and very terrifying at others. Yeah, she was the real box I couldn't really unlock from this book in a great way. I will continue to be fascinated by her character. Mm. Hartley Hartley mentions also, you know, the, the expectations that her mother has for her. Yes. yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I thought I could talk a little bit about because, you know, um, I thought a little bit about the, the the social background of the novel, right? Because, yeah. Because sometimes the way even Hartley presents it is of this kind of very static hierarchical society that all falls apart or whatever. But, you know, what emerges for me in the novel, right, is that, first of all, there's the context of the Boer War. Yes, yes. Which he discounts, but it's a war that has really, it seems to have touched all the characters in the novel in some way. And although it's going to be get dwarfed by the First World War and then the Second World War, you know, it's it's still this first, this kind of thing that is causing this sort of upheaval. And then a second, you know, background, I think, really is capitalism and colonialism because... Yeah. The, the old order, the, the, the order of the noblemen and the nobility has already been supplanted in some sense. And I remember when I, when I went to England, you know, you, you get these big manors and it turned out that they were actually built by some working class guy who went to India and then, you know, through colonial spoils, made a ton of money and then comes home and then has all this money, you know. And, and so, and the, the real life equivalent for... The family is is family of coal miners, you know, coal families. So Marion's family is this nouveau riche, and they're sort of got they've got all of this. And then Trimingham is the viscount, and he's the nobility, but he's a little short on cash. So because he's, um, you know, he's and uh, because he's a tenant there, and so so it it seems so. There's there's an air of inevitability that they should get married because. The nouveau riche wants to become nobility, and the nobility needs the cash. And so this, so that sense of inevitability kind of hangs over everybody, including Marion from the first. And and it's so it, the whole thing is framed as you have no choice but to fall in love with this guy, you know. So so it's right. So so maybe for Marion, in some way, there's also this that pressure that she feels that of what she's going to. That, that on one hand, the desire that leads her beyond this hierarchy or beyond this kind of inevitability. And maybe it's the inevitability that leads her, wants, makes her look for somebody outside of it, you know. But, but she's also in some way giving in to all of that. And that's the order of the parents. At the end of the thing, she says, oh, my parents were lovely people. So she has, so she feels the sense of obligation to this order and to her family and to her parents. And then there's something in her that completely rebels against all of this. Yeah. And yeah. So I guess that's why she's sort of hoping to, uh, to have her cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. That's what that would be my, you know, do you think she cared for Leo though? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, um, 
you know, I, I keep changing my mind about that, you know, yeah. from page to page. <laughs> so it's... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's part of like one of the appealing things about the book. It was the complexity of all of those layers of class and presentation and interaction, the way that everything, because Leo is the literal go-between, but they're all go-betweens. They all have these opposing forces acting on them. And like, even though he's an outsider at the hall and he's our protagonist, they are all out. Like this class system is so rigid, but also fake that it's like, they're all, they're (laughs) all torn apart. They're all outsiders in their own mind. And I, I, I felt like Marion, yeah, she could be selfish, but she's also really struggling. Like she's really unhappy and doesn't want to have to make yeah. this choice. So it's hard not to have sympathy for any of them. And then I was- Unless inter- you're Hartley. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I was interested in your suggestion that maybe his conservatism was a bit of a disguise. And you mentioned earlier the kind of queer coding of the book. Yeah. And it is like Leo's affection for Marion, which maybe feels like heterosexual, is sort of the impetus for why he goes through the bother of going through all this in the first place. Because a lot of 12-year-olds would be like, no, I'm not going to take your note. Like, I'm sick of doing that. But he, <laughs> it's like his, his affection for Marion is what keeps him doing it. But there's other things going on there. So could you speak more to that aspect of the book and what you saw in it? The queerness? Yeah, I mean, like like the, the first time when, when Trimingham, who was the sort of appointed fiancé, arrives, he's actually jealous of him because, you know, he's jealous of these other men yes. in Marion's life. And so he, but then he's also kind of uh, very, very taken with Ted, the farmer and his uh, kind of masculinity. And there is this, I guess there's a deleted scene where so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of lingering on on Ted's body and, yes. and all of yeah. that. Yes. So on on some level he's he's attracted to both of these people, and so that's what makes it a kind of perfect triangle in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, I love Ted's character introduction by the river, where they describe his his body, and then he he jumps in to swim, and they Leo didn't even realize the river was there below him until he makes the leap, and you could just. Uh, it, it's it's actually hilarious how sensually Ted's body is described throughout the whole thing because the guy's just always taking off his shirt. He's always like polishing <laughs> a gun. Like he's <laughs> right. It's hilarious. The, I, I read somewhere that I mean Hartley always very firmly denied that the novel was autobiographical, but someone sent me this anecdote that apparently when the film was premiering. He suddenly broke down and he said that he had seen something near the outhouses. Huh. So that's also part of the, 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 the kind of the landscape of this, um, mm. this manner, you would call it. Where, so, it's, so he's not interested in the garden and he's not really that interested in the house. But he's interested in the, in the kind of borderlands of this estate where the, the yeah. garbage heap and the outhouse and these are the these are the the locations when where this these trysts are going on and where he has the, also these encounters with the farmer Ted on those kinds of boundary the boundaries of the estate as it were. Good point. Yes. Sure. Sure. There's one more thing I, I forgot to add on the simile thing. Yeah, please. Uh, if you if you can splice it in or something. If it but yeah. there's another you know L P Hartley. 
I mean, this is what makes me skeptical of this construction of him as this super conservative guy or whatever. But, but he was a, a kind of a friend and mentor to an Indian poet and novelist called Fridun Kabraji, who had edited. And so, so, uh, so I, I had actually this letter that Hartley had written to Kabraji about his own work, and he was praising his writing. And one thing he praises Kabraji's observation that there are things that are beautifully observed with an eye to their spiritual quality. Mm-hmm. So that gives a sense, uh, gives us a sense of Hartley's own descriptions. And then he praises the phrase, she was out of the yard, out in the yard, like a draft from the back door. So there again, you have mm-hmm. a kind of simile. So, so he's, he's kind of attracted to this kind of thing in, in the work of others as well. Sure, sure. That's yeah. That's a fascinating detail that you pulled up. How'd you find that letter? Oh, I have an interest uh, through some mutual friends in Kabraji and Fritun Kabraji, and then and then of course the Hartley name popped up. I was like, oh, okay. And, like I gotta uh, follow that. You know, he was, yeah, he was quite the mentor to to various people and so on, and um, uh, apparently fought with his servants a lot and so on, but. But but I, I think he had a you know maybe he had just both of these, both of these instincts running alongside a kind of conservative instinct or a, a, certainly an instinct for a world before the world wars, which he feels like kind of destroyed everything on some level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, I'm assuming he would have been happy about the sort of opening up of society vis-a-vis sexuality and so on. Yeah. Sure. So I don't know, but, but you know. It's... Yeah. Well, on the point of Hartley's contradictions, there's a lot of symbolism in the story, but even so, Hartley swore that he never deliberately introduced a symbol into his books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how did the, the symbols of this novel, like the deadly nightshade, uh, the heat, which is like constantly being revisited, Leo keeps notes in his diary of what the temperature is each day. So deliberate or not, do those symbols enhance the narrative for you? Do they weigh it down at some point? Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize they were symbols until, you know, I read the, I read the introduction and this, and, you know, I, I, I was genuinely terrified by this, this nightshade. And yeah. I just experienced it as, okay, now he says, he, he kind of seems to think of it as a symbol of, of uh, sexuality and fear, something like that. But, but I didn't, ex- I mean, I was just, I was genuinely, for me, that was part of the hallucinatory quality of the book. And, sure. and the, the heat thing was, you know, that, 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 I mean, one of the things is that this child believes somewhere that he has a lot more power than he actually has. And yeah, so we need to talk about that. that. He sees himself as a, as a magician, you know, and he believes that he can cast right. spells, you know, and, and all of these kinds of things. And so, so he is kind of, so he's, he's trying to cast a spell on the, on the heat. And, um, yeah. and, 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 and Hartley says he remembers, you know, he remembers this heat wave, I guess, from 1900 or whatever, which, which he didn't experience in, in England, you know, in rainy England until the 1950s. So I, I'm I, I'm not sure that I mean I don't I don't I don't believe I mean I, I don't know actually but I, I I didn't I don't believe he's kind of inserting these symbols in I, I think that they are so vivid 
Sure. And so experienced. And and Hartley remembers the nightshade as well. That's one of the things he remembers yeah. from this. This uh, this so so you know whether they become symbols on the book or another. But I, I think that their source is not. He's not sitting down with a list of symbols and then inserting them into his book. I, I, yeah, I don't yeah. think that that's what's happening. Because then their effectiveness yeah. is because they, they, they really do exert that kind of power over you. You're wondering what the hell is going on kind of thing with his obsession with the thermometer and so on and so forth. At the very least, I can say that Leo himself purposefully makes symbols. I love how he defines all the main characters in the book as Zodiacs. And so Miriam true, is like the true. virgin. Ted is... Uh, I can't remember Ted, and I think Charmaine Holmes like Ted the, is archer the archer and stuff. I and believe. So... Yeah, yeah. Ted is the archer. Okay, I think so. But he's he's the guy with the gun. That's why I thought he was the archer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, uh, yeah. Leo, in order to find to, to like understand his world in this book, has to create these like fantastic symbols. And I do love That's how Leo point. like fancies himself as this spellcaster and stuff. And I think it sets up early and well how much power this boy can have and not completely understand the consequences there's kind of this terrifying sentence where the first spell i guess it's not the first because the first one was getting the bullies away but one of the main spells he casts is trying to end school two weeks early and shockingly (laughs) uh, a a massive measles outbreak happens and you know it says like everyone was thrilled to be set home early because of the measles outbreak except for those that had measles (laughs) and it's like all this like progress and great stuff happened and he didn't realize that he is a spellcaster if he was the reason for this he made many people really painfully sick and that (laughs) kind of uh defines where this book is going in a way very early on very true i mean the the book is very very masterfully plotted in that yes that, that everything comes back as an echo and it doesn't feel Though it must have been very consciously constructed, maybe or something, it doesn't feel that way. It feels, it feels meaningful in the way that you know the breadcrumbs that he drops at the beginning and then pick yeah. up at the end and so on. And so forth. very much so. Yeah, on that on that point, like the the craft of the book as a whole is like one of the things that really stood out to me, and part of that was the the plotting. I mean, you mentioned his like on the sentence level, like just those those comparisons that he makes. There's just dozens of excellent lines. The the dialogue is can be really funny. Like between we have all this darkness. It's very humorous. Go and that's being foreshadowed. But then like the dialogue of between Marcus and Leo, them like slagging each other off and firing back at each other, like can really make you make you laugh. The way the chapters are broken up so that there'll be this like dramatic reveal at the end of one chapter and then it picks you up. You at can't the, put it down. The, just the next instant. Yeah, just the way that suspense is built too because that climax at the end just escalates so quickly and then it resolves so neatly and perfectly. Mm. And it's just like, how did how did he do it? You know, like the, I, maybe that's <laughs> why people uh, go to the symbols and like when you see, see some excellently created thing you want to like take it apart and like critique it for the way that it was because it was great in a way i think there's like that impulse in Mm -hmm. literary criticism but it also just was like a cracking read like it it was maybe one of the best (laughs) just like summer reads that we've had on our show so far (laughs) yes i I did i did notice that it it takes place in the month of july so yes uh, (laughs) yeah we read it kind of during july we're recording in early august right another defining trait of the summer as well especially in england 
because this is like the big set piece of the book, I think we have to designate a little bit of time to it, is the cricket match. Mm-hmm. Out, out of curiosity, Vivek, are you a fan of cricket? <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm unfortunately not a fan oh, of sports man. in general, but... <laughs> okay. I, I'm a huge cricket fan, so I, oh, I interesting. ate these two chapters up. Nice. These are probably my two favorite chapters from an NYRB. Do you, yeah. do you have any? Do you have any commentary on the cricket game at all? Oh, it's a. It was a great match. <laughs> I've played a little cricket as well, and so I know the feeling of sort of going out to the crease and like you know you slap the the bat down and you're like getting ready and and that feeling of like being in the field and gotta tell you it does actually really hurt to catch the ball and I had a pretty soft ball when right. I played so. I, I really felt in Leo's shoes during that while he's sort of watching and then later participating in the game. I could tell you like the descriptions feel and the, it's interesting because he's the older Leo is saying like he knows nothing about cricket. He barely remembers the rules, but he describes it in a way that feels very apt to a cricket match where one character will try to go out and swing hard and maybe gets a boundary or two and gets the crowd going. But then he gets out because he, he was being a little too reckless. And then. Right. You know, that, that's sort of Trimingham's part of the story. But then, you know, Maudsley's part is he just wants to hit a nice square drive, get a run, very safe. And, you know, he gets his 50. And then you see people go on tears like like Ted does, where he just sort of takes over the match. And I just I as a person that knows the sport pretty well, I would say as much as an American can. I didn't really grow up with it. It felt very realistic as far as a cricket match went. Yeah, I mean, what you described, each of those things sort of, I guess, give you an insight into the character. Mm-hmm. They completely define the character. That's what's so good. Yeah. And and I mean, for me also, of course, the, the thing was really how that whole thing dramatizes the class conflict. So yes. It's yes. Kind of, yes. It's a kind of really ritual that in some ways meant to, it's meant to reconcile the, uh, I think they call it hall and country, if I remember correctly. It's, it's meant to reconcile the, you know, the... The, the people from the ma- the hall with with the people from the townsfolk and so it's a ritual specifically designed to kind of address any hidden tensions they might be but at the same time of course the outcome is always read as some sort of outcome between you know who who wins the match kind of is somehow read as some kind of class outcome yes. and um, and that's a sort of tradition as well i think you know you there's a there's an Indian film called Lagan where, you know, the, I was telling like Kasi about that movie. I love Lagan. Yeah. So, yeah. So this. Well, I mean, of course, it's you know, it's very stereotypical the way it's you know those those kind of nationalist dramas are always having. Sure, sure. You know, and of course, you know, the white guys are going to lose because you know <laughs> that kind of thing. So it's but. But that's always interesting. And so that, and of course, there's always, you know, when the India, Pakistan, or right. certain countries play against each other. Yeah, we just had the ashes. that kind of subtext going on. Yeah, so you really follow cricket. Oh, I love cricket. Oh, he's I the real deal. absolutely love cricket. He's obsessed. That's <laughs> impressive. That's impressive. My my uncle was watching the, the ashes. I, I mean, yeah. everybody, even my... Uh, even my parents got into it afterwards, but it was um, quite a good ashes. That was one of the better ashes I can remember. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but yeah, and Lagan has an interestingly similar thing where Lagan has a romantic love triangle between. In this case, the the genders are sort of switched, where the main character 
has a love interest both with like one of the girls that are from his village and then there's another person from like the rich english side that is sort of teaching them cricket because she like likes the the main character and wants them to to beat her english counterparts oh that's a good point like you said this is sort of a cultural thing that does evoke a lot of storytelling and narrative in a way and it, 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 it it's something that's very truthful to historical british context as well yeah and, and in this book they they it's very conscious i mean they they're clearly staging this because then afterwards everybody ends up you know so so together in that so they're clearly staging this cricket match specifically as a kind of ritual to kind of address uh, these lingering tensions there might be between these, these yes. two classes or groups. So they, they're quite, everybody seems quite aware of that in the novel, that that's mm-hmm. what it's all about, you know. Um, yeah. And that's why they're also careful and that, that's how they talk about it, etc. Of course, of course, the staff of the manor play on the side of the yeah uh, of, of of the hall. So that's, yes. yeah, but yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit screwy in that case. And they add this extra layer of not just the class within the country, but of empire. And and Leo makes that comparison directly where he's like, I saw that the town team was like the Boers. And he's aware oh. that his that his parents didn't support the Boer War, but that Trimmingham right. fought in it and was scarred. He's got a sickle-shaped scar very specifically um, from that right. conflict. And he's come back and he's, of course, a hero. And so Leo is aware that like he's kind of got to pretend like the Boer War was was like a good thing and like but secretly within him, he he's like rooting for the other other side. Like he's torn between. And so I kind of saw that whole game as like Right. Look at this decaying British empire and, and you know, yeah, look at the, what we're left yeah. with. The Boers come up, you know, again and again in, in, in that in, in yes. that, uh, novel in terms of a kind of other and, and uh, you know, who may or may not be so bad after all kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think just like the Boer War almost, where at least the second one that really is sort of the defining feature that this book is sort of based around where it was maybe the last really successful British empire conquest where they did win this war and was able to keep control of these Southern African regions. And it's similar to the cricket game where Ted is really just sort of taking it to the edge and he's right there. He is ready to win playing sort of dirty. He's playing new tactics. He's and all this stuff sort of like the gorillas were in the Boer war, but just barely this, English youth that almost the 13th are less, man. Yeah, the 13th right. man kind of comes in and barely saves the day. And so you see that this is maybe the last moment that the British will be on top. And it oh. is sort of exciting and terrifying, you know, new era for these characters where they don't really know where they're going in this way. Yeah, so I found that maybe the cricket match was like the best symbol in this book on the whole it defined the characters it defined the narrative yeah it's it's a beautiful sequence even for someone like me who is who isn't interested in sports um <laughs> it was it was it was it was completely captivating i mean what what's interesting to just to add to what you were saying is that you know that leo the the boy is the one who he doesn't expect to even be part of the cricket match at first he's just a yeah. spectator and then he ends up catching the, the final thing and, and getting the farmer out. 
So he's, a, you know, he is this outsider figure. He's a, he's of a slightly lower class background and you're, you're constantly reminded of that. They're, they're trying to, you know, buy him things because mm-hmm. they feel a little sorry for him. His, his father is dead and so on and so forth. And so he's this outsider. So the cricket match, well, that's, there's that. And then there's a singing incident, but the cricket match is when he suddenly becomes an insider. Yes, Uh, and that's the thrill of it because he's been waiting to be let into this, and that becomes suddenly he's the center of attention, and he's this you know he feels like he's inside. He's been accepted into the world of this hall, which which he's kind of on some way aspirational towards. Yeah, and I do want to kind of quickly talk about the singing scene as well, which is sort of the following set piece, and it's so beautiful, and I love how. Ted sings wonderfully, but it's not polished. It's not trained. It's just a natural beauty of his voice. And Leo, on the other hand, comes up and sings this like very um, <laughs> Christian, you know, holy angels sort Full of song. He's like, song. yeah, it's it's sort of like he does. He's sort of this like ignorant person to like the the world of sin at this point almost, or he's just getting right. into it. And so it's this like last moment before he bites the apple. And that's why I think everyone's so like taken by him is because he's just not, he's in this world and he's not ready for it almost is maybe the best way to put it. Right. And they kind of like find some beauty in him. God, I love the singing scene. Yeah. Yeah. It has, you know, it's a novel with these sort of set pieces. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's that also, there's, there's the kind of flow of the novel. There's the prose, there's the plotting, but then there are also these just these fantastic set pieces, which kind of really stay with you. Yeah. All right, I think we got to say um, adieu to all those that haven't read this book because I'd recommend you go. You stop here because now we're going to get into our, our final question. We're really going to dig into like the ending because I think we have to. So as this goes along, Leo becomes less and less interested in delivering the notes. And towards the end, he decides to enact this like weird godlike agency in changing a note, which... Um, mm-hmm has potentially negative ramifications for those involved. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the meetup goes differently between Marion and Ted, and it coincides with his birthday party. And, right. you know, that makes the characters need to go find where Marion is. And they discover this incredible moment where they discover Ted and Marion in intercourse. And <laughs> the book just like ends suddenly. Right. And is like, and Ted right. killed himself and then Mary and Mary trimming him. And you're left with a bit of whiplash, but then they get into this amazing epilogue. So do you believe Leo's life was permanently altered by the events of the summer of 1900? And do you think that the events of this summer were permanently altered by Leo or would they have happened nonetheless? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, Hartley certainly sort of stages it that this, this is this kind of like, super traumatic event in Leo's life that he has a loss of memory and then he spends a lot and then it kind of marks the whole rest of his life and it marks all his uh, relationships after that mm-hmm. I, I I was somehow not convinced by that that mm-hmm. that was a that, that was a little forced for me that this this one thing would then completely alter the whole rest of his life that's the point where I sort of felt the novelist pulling the strings a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, um, 
but I mean, the question of whether it, yeah, I mean, well, it, they, before they, before the, before that, the the mother has already figured out something is on, you know, and she, yeah, yep, and she asks him, and he doesn't, um, he, he, they don't tell you what his answer to her was, but, but later at the birthday party, her hands are shaking, even though she's still acting like everything is fine, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you could argue it's the mother who kind of gets it out of him. And the yeah. mother gets yeah. it out of him, he thinks, because Marcus, his friend, in that moment when they're having this interchange, he confesses something about it to Marcus. And then the mother finds out and so on and so forth. But I also think that, I, I don't know if you all have things like this, but but are there things that you from your childhood that kind of unresolved guilt mm. for for things that you... There's weird stuff like that, that that I have, you know, stuff that... Me too. When I look at it objectively, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something I did. But I feel like whatever I... I betrayed my grandfather on the night of his death by not drinking the milk he asked me to. You know, stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know, that kind sure. of thing. And so so, so, so I, I think that, that we tend to feel... We tend to somehow carry a kind of guilt from our childhood for things that we may have not really done. And so on some level, I mean, I feel like there's something of that going on here as well, that ultimately he thinks, for instance, that because he performed the spell right. uh, and he uprooted the nightshade, yeah. that's what then set everything in motion. Whereas whereas when, when they're having that discussion with Trimingham, and I think, is it Dennis who is in the room with him? Mm. When they're first discussing about how Ted is a ladies' man, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then he says something about, well, apparently looks like he has someone from the, you know, he, he's, yep. he's seeing a woman up here. So that means that on some level, this, this is not as big a secret as they think, that they've already been indiscreet. Yeah. yeah. And that... You know that ultimately this is just this is something that's waiting to come out because there's only so long that they can actually manage to keep it secret. So I I think it could be. I mean, again, this is one of those things that's just that what's beautiful about the novel is that it remains unresolved and you can't yes. figure it out. But but I think that there is a there is at least some dimension of it where he carries a lot of guilt over this where. He, uh, ultimately, maybe he was just a bit player in the whole thing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 that's also interesting about the epilogue, right? Is that is that when you see the whole thing from her perspective? Yes. And and the way that he up to now we've seen it only from the little boy's perspective, and everything revolves around him. Like he's responsible for everything. He's the guy doing everything. He's the reason why they're able to. But the way she tells it. It's all about them and their great love. And he was a, a bit player in that, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was interesting is that how, you know, each of the characters uh, really imagines what went on in a very, very different way. And they imagine it in a way that centers them. Yep. You know, yeah. that Marion imagines it in a way that puts her at the center of everything and her great capacity to love, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and, and the fact that for... And she doesn't, you know, the fact of her grandson, you know, so so everything is, it's 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 all that that whole thing for her is revolving around her. For Leo, it's all revolving around him. So 
so I, I think that I feel like, I don't know what you guys think, but I feel that there's, there's a dimension of that going on as well. Yeah. And it also felt like it was suggesting like they live in this version of England that makes England the center of everything, or they live yeah. in this upper class world that makes, that makes the upper class that end all be all is like, are you wearing a Norfolk jacket? Do you have the right outfit for the summer right. games? All this like, BS that Leo takes really seriously <laughs> because he feels like he's right. well he's being indoctrinated too but yeah I had and then of course Marion asked Leo the final irony to deliver yet another message <laughs> from <laughs> from her to the illegitimate grandson of the Trimmingham line did you read that as he because he walks up and the final moment of the of the novel is he see the hall comes into view, which was beautiful because it does reference that bit in the prologue where he says, I don't remember what the hall looked like. I only remember right. this description of it in some book that I copied out in my diary. So it's like memory right. and reality like come into a clash at that final moment. And do you think that he do you did you get the sense that he is going to talk to the the new Viscount? Or that he is just done with the whole thing and he's going to go home? I mean, he seems to say that he seems to kind of relate, though he thinks it's ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> he seems like he's going to, uh, but we don't hear, we don't get to see what he tells him. Yeah. Um, you know, he, yeah. he because, because, because what he tells the Viscount may not be, you know, the bald facts as he saw them, but yeah. maybe yeah. That, that's yet another story. Yet another mm. kind of uh, account of the whole thing that he's going to tell this Viscount, you know, to try and somehow reconcile these two now. So it's possible that that you know that's that's not it's not it's not going to be the truth arriving in that moment, but it's going to be yet another version of this version of the stories that he's now going to tell him. Yes. You know? uh, and and there's clearly and Marianne has seeded him as well, like she's. You know, she's. It's not like that. She wants him to tell his own version of the story. She's very carefully primed mm -hmm. him for what she wants her grandson to hear about the story. So what? So so um, so she's already kind of more or less primed him for for what it is, the message he's going to be able to deliver. How much of a spin or what he does with that is something that that's left open. Yeah, I think this epilogue is really uh, impactful in that way. And it reminded me of another book that is a favorite of Cassie and mine. I don't know if you care about it, but it's The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, which has this sort of amazing epilogue where, you know, it is like another like 40, 50 years later and people sort of reckoning with huh. what they did in the past. And I feel, I have this picture of Cassie reading the, the epilogue of Age of Innocence <laughs> with like a terrified look on her face almost like through her fingers just like oh my gosh i can't believe this is happening and that's how i felt reading this epilogue just oh. unable to comprehend how perfect it was that he was this go-between once more and the sort of ways it wrapped up all the storylines of all the characters we were with all this time later and Oh, yeah, I, I haven't I haven't read that, but I, I but I, that's a good recommendation to. to yeah, I um, hadn't I hadn't expected to like that book at all. It was like one of those things. I was like, I don't care. Like rich people in New York, it's not going to be for me. <laughs> and then I and then I read it, and I was like, this is freaking great. Like I can't stop reading it. And it's a similar experience that you have with the Go Between right. too. It's unexpectedly good. 
So the, the moral of the story is, you know, try it before you knock it kind yep. of thing. Yeah, so, maybe, yeah. Uh, but that but that is interesting because because normally what you expect of an epilogue is some kind of diminuendo, you know. Um, yes. You don't expect everything to change once you finish the epilogue. And it's amazing how defensive he is about that. Uh, Hartley is in his author's note. I mean, he must, it looks like people really didn't like that epilogue at all, which is... That's so strange insane. to us, it's right? Crazy. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like authors' oh. notes are always defensive. Like, <laughs> they, they always are. They always are, like, fighting some critic that right. seems crazy, like, in, in years into the future. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, some people have said that about my, uh, the foreword to my book as well. So maybe, but maybe there's a kind of author's note that comes before a book out. So then you're trying to figure out who your critics are going to be and preempt them. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? no, I liked uh, your in, author's In Hartley's note. case, he's, yeah, <laughs> in, in Hartley's case, you know, he's kind of like, he knows who his critics are and then he's, now he's, he's kind of using that to kind of go after them, you know, so. <laughs> Is there any passage that you marked out that you would like to read? Uh, you know, I mean, it's really the, the first two pages, isn't it? That's what I, I keep yeah. coming back to. The thing about the first couple of pages is Kasi was telling me, like, of course, like the first sentence is so famous, but she was like, the paragraph after that and the paragraph after that was even better. Pretty yeah. good. So maybe we should just do that because it's got and it's so it's just got all these things in it. Right. So it's just the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. When I came upon the diary, it was lying at the bottom of a rather battered red cardboard collar box in which as a small boy I kept my Eton collars. Someone, probably my mother, has filled it with treasures dating from those days. There were two dry empty sea urchins, two rusty magnets, a large one and a small one, which had almost lost their magnetism. Some negatives rolled up in a tight coil, some stumps of sealing wax, a small combination lock with three rows of letters, a twist of very fine whip cord, and one or two ambiguous objects, pieces of things, of which the use was not at once apparent. I could not even tell what they had belonged to. The relics were not exactly dirty, nor were they quite clean. They had the patina of age. And as I handled them for the first time for over 50 years, a recollection of what each had meant to me came back, faint as the magnet's power to draw, but as perceptible. Something came and went between us, the intimate pleasure of recognition, the almost mystical thrill of early ownership, feelings of which, at 60-odd, I felt ashamed. Mm. It was a roll call in reverse. The children of the past announced their names. And I said, here, only the diary refused to disclose its identity. How could you not keep reading? I know. And Vivek, we met you when you did a reading from your book after at a, at a, right. at a the <laughs> NYRB 10th anniversary poetry and as always, you're an incredible reader of of, of prose. Thank you, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. And 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 as you know, I'm I'm a huge fanboy. It was even 
a little bit unnerving to meet you in person because uh, <laughs> because I had sort of grown so intimate with your voices. But yeah, I, I really I listened. I feel at home and. As I said, I felt intimate with your voices, so it was a little bit, a little bit strange even to to meet in person. Yeah, when you when you talked about how this book was an unexpected one for you to love, I think when we were like, oh, if we see Vivek, maybe we'll try to ask him and see if if he would want to come on the show and what book he would, he could pick whatever book. And we were like, oh, he might pick like one of the poetry books. He he's very like sort of <laughs> transcendental. We were like, oh, it's just like the very simple. British schoolboy book. We we were <laughs> right, surprised right, as well. Right. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but how could but, you not? Yeah, this is this is where my heart. This was this was where my. Even I was thinking maybe I should have. You know, I should try and pick. Uh, you know, some kind of weightier. Uh, I mean, this is a very weighty book. It's it a is. is a very weighty book. book but, it is. But but it's also somehow like this is just book kind of represents this sort of enchantment of literature for me. I love that. I will say that we've had a at least one other person in kind of a second mentioned that when we gave them a choice to pick a book since we talked with you, did pick the go-between and we had to be like, okay, someone had that <laughs> like reserved. It's taken. So like, sorry. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad, I'm glad I had first dibs then. You picked the best book I think you could have. And what a good discussion we had. I'm really happy. Thanks. And, and more power to your, to your fantastic journey of a podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Thank so, you so much. It's been awesome to have cheers. you on. Yeah, I'll be listening. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. Join us again in two weeks when we discuss Butcher's Crossing by John Williams. Until then, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Unburied Books. Unburied Books.